Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Well, I'm standing in front of City Hall in Salisbury, England, and there are about a dozen market stalls set up out front selling local pottery and English fudge. This small medieval city is about a 90-minute train ride west of London, and it feels like an outdoor museum. It was built around the 800-year-old Salisbury Cathedral with its famous Gothic spire, the biggest in the UK, more than 100 meters tall. The cathedral clock is thought to be the oldest working clock in the world. And it's also home to an original copy of the Magna Carta. And you've got Stonehenge, just a short drive up the road from here. So no surprise that Salisbury is one of the most popular tourist destinations in Britain. But the number of visitors here has plummeted by more than 10% in recent months. And officials in Salisbury are now scrambling to launch a major advertising campaign to try and bring people back here. But the reason that they're staying away is that for months last year, this city was crawling with police and forensic investigators wearing those giant hazardous material spacesuits. People were afraid that their own street or their local park could be contaminated with the deadly nerve agent known as Novichuk. And the source of those fears is this quiet residential dead-end street, just about a five, ten-minute drive away from Salisbury City Hall. And there's one red brick house on this street that has its door and windows boarded up. It is wrapped in police tape, and there's a police officer standing guard here. And this is where Sergei Skripal used to live, a former Russian secret agent who on March 4th, 2018, arrived home, he reached for the doorknob on his front door and was poisoned with Novichuk. The two people, a man aged 66 and a 33-year-old woman, were found unconscious in a bench in the Maltings area of Salisbury City Centre. The pair, who we believe are known to each other, did not have any visible injuries and were taken to Salisbury District Hospital. Both are currently in a critical condition in intensive care. British authorities said the nerve agent was sprayed on his front door and that the Kremlin's fingerprints were everywhere. The two individuals named by the police and CPS are officers from the Russian Military Intelligence Service. I'm Jeff Semple, the Europe Bureau Chief for Global News, and this is Russia Rising. On this episode, we'll unravel the mystery surrounding last year's attempted assassination of a former Russian spy, Sergei Skripal, in Salisbury, England. The weapon was Novichuk, considered by many to be the deadliest nerve agent on Earth. It enters the body through the skin and is truly horrific, causing paralysis and convulsions. Its victims can choke to death on their own vomit. This alleged attack marked the first chemical nerve agent attack on European soil since the Second World War. 
and it provoked one of the most explosive, most controversial accusations facing the Kremlin today. Were Russian secret agents responsible for the botched assassination? And if so, how could trained Russian spies have been so careless, leaving a trail of evidence for British investigators to follow? And perhaps the most important question, did Russian President Vladimir Putin give the order? Let me tell you uh, this. The GRU, any uh, Russian secret service, would never do that without personal authorization from Putin. Never. We'll hear from a former Russian secret agent, a former British intelligence officer, and the Russian journalist who first uncovered the true identities of the alleged assassins, and why he claims that Russian spycraft is getting sloppy. They just operate in, in, in a very, very unprofessional way, and we see it all everywhere. But to first understand why these allegations were so controversial, you've got to go back to March the 12th, 2018. Sergei Skripal and his daughter, Yulia, were in hospital, on life support, and were not expected to survive. They were found collapsed on a park bench, foaming at the mouth, struggling to breathe, just the week before. But the British Prime Minister wasted no time. Statement, the Prime Minister. Theresa May stood up in British Parliament and pointed the finger directly at Moscow. It is now clear that Mr. Skripal and his daughter were poisoned with a military-grade nerve agent of a type developed by Russia. This is part of a group of nerve agents known as Novichok. Based on the positive identification of this chemical agent by world-leading experts at the Defence Science and Technology Laboratory at Porton Down, our knowledge that Russia has previously produced this agent and would still be capable of doing so, Russia's record of conducting state-sponsored assassinations, and our assessment that Russia views some defectors as legitimate targets for assassinations, the government has concluded that it is highly likely that Russia was responsible for the act against Sergei and Yulia Skripal. Russia! 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 Less than a week later, Russian President Putin, fresh off his latest election victory, responded to the bold British accusation. I learned about the tragedy in the media, and the first thing that comes to mind is that if it was really a military toxic agent, then the people would have been killed instantly. This is an obvious fact that needs to be understood. Secondly, Russia doesn't possess these toxic agents. We have destroyed all of our chemical weapons under the control of international observers. But Putin's denial did little to placate the British government or its allies. The actions by uh, Russia against civilians uh, of another country are absolutely unacceptable. Canada, the United States, NATO, and 26 other countries responded by expelling a whopping 342 Russian diplomats, an unprecedented number, even compared with the chilliest years of the Cold War. It's a very sad situation. It certainly looks like the Russians were behind it. But despite that show of solidarity from Western governments, some members of the wider public remained skeptical. 
The British government had said it was highly likely that Russia was responsible for the poisoning. But for months, it remained tight-lipped on the details. If British authorities had evidence to back up that claim, they weren't showing their hand. At least, not yet. In the absence of publicly available evidence, there was a kind of free-for-all of he said, she said, denials and conspiracy theories. Russia's TV networks had a field day. After weeks of media hysterics and official claims without a shred of evidence, the case that Russia was behind the Salisbury poisoning incident is falling apart. The Russian foreign minister even suggested that the UK government might have carried out the attempted assassination to distract the British public from Brexit. I remember covering the story at the time for Global News from London, and even some veteran British analysts that I spoke with at the time weren't sure what to think. For a lot of ordinary people, it came down to a simple question of who do you trust more or less, the Russian president or the British prime minister? And some started drawing comparisons to other times in history when British leaders had been less than truthful. Mr. Speaker. One popular example among skeptics. There is no doubt that Iraq poses a threat in respect of weapons of mass destruction. Former British Prime Minister Tony Blair's war in Iraq based on those missing weapons of mass destruction. We know that was based entirely, entirely on propaganda, deception and lies. That, at the very least, at the very least, should make us skeptical. And further fueling that skepticism were questions over motive. I mean, sure, it's not the first time that the Kremlin has been accused of targeting former agents. Ex-Russian spy Alexander Litvinenko was poisoned to death by alleged Russian agents in London, England back in 2006 after they slipped a radioactive substance into his tea while they were having lunch at a high-end restaurant. But unlike Litvinenko, Sergei Skripal was not an outspoken critic of the Kremlin. In fact, his neighbors say that the 67-year-old had been living a quiet life in retirement. Alexander Vasiliev is a former KGB agent who now lives in London, and he says the timing of this assassination attempt also doesn't make sense. They wouldn't do that without Putin's authorization. And Putin would never authorize it because of the World Cup. Vasiliev notes that the Skripal poisoning happened just three months before Russia was to host the FIFA World Cup. And many Western leaders chose to boycott that tournament after the events in Salisbury. The World Cup was an enormous event for Russia, advertising event. It wasn't only about football. It was an advertising event for the whole Russia. Russia was showing its good face to, to the world. They invest, invested a huge amount of money. And according to international experts, that was one of the best World Cups ever. So you have to be really, really stupid to do something like the poisoning in Salisbury three months before the World Cup. With permission, Mr. Speaker, I would like to update the House. But then, in September, six months after the Skripal poisoning, British authorities finally broke their silence and showed their cards. 
Mr. Speaker, this forensic investigation has now produced sufficient evidence for the independent director of public prosecutions to bring charges against two Russian nationals for the conspiracy to murder Sergei Skripal. The British Prime Minister not only announced criminal charges against two Russian suspects, but the police also released a dozen images of them, captured on some of the UK's five million security cameras. Now, the photos showed the suspects arriving at the airport and then documented their travels over the next couple of days. They stayed in London and made two trips to Salisbury, including on the day of the poisoning, before then flying back to Moscow the same day. Police even found traces of that rare nerve agent, Novichok, inside their London hotel room. British officials said the two men had traveled to the UK on real Russian passports, but they had used fake names. Police said they didn't know the men's real identities, but the British Prime Minister had little doubt who they were working for. Based on a body of intelligence, the government has concluded that the two individuals named by the police and CPS are officers from the Russian Military Intelligence Service, also known as the GRU. The GRU is a highly disciplined organisation with a well-established chain of command. So this was not a rogue operation. It was almost certainly also approved outside the GRU at a senior level of the Russian state. That allegation that the assassins were Russian GRU secret agents stunned the world. And it also confused a lot of people, left struggling to understand how Russian intelligence agents could be so unintelligent. You'll be trained in psychological manipulation. It certainly doesn't jive with the Hollywood image of unstoppable Russian spies, like Jennifer Lawrence in the movie Red Sparrow, trained to seduce, to kill, and to disappear. In contrast, these alleged Russian spies in Salisbury left a long and embarrassing trail of evidence. They used a nerve agent that was widely believed to have been developed in Russia. And they even botched the assassination. A single drop of Novichuk can be deadly, and yet Skripal survived. The Russian president insisted that the two suspects were ordinary Russian civilians and that they were innocent. Putin said the men should come forward and tell the world their story to help clear their names. And lo and behold, the very next day, the suspects appeared for an interview on Russian television. The two middle-aged, burly men insisted that they were just tourists who wanted to see the Salisbury Cathedral and its famous spire. That strange account of their visit was widely mocked, including inside Russia. These two people, if they are Russian intelligence officers, are more Austin Powers than James Bond. Charles Shoebridge is a former British counterintelligence officer. He says it beggars belief that this might have been an undercover intelligence operation. The whole operation, if indeed it is what is alleged, um, has been carried out with a, a massive degree of incompetence um, from, a, from an operational perspective. 
But one person who was not surprised to hear about sloppy Russian spies is Russian investigative journalist Roman Debrahodov. These in- intelligence services are not that intelligent. Debrahodov is the editor-in-chief of The Insider, a Russian investigative website, and he's spent the past few years investigating Russian GRU activities. Last year alone, suspected Russian agents were busted conducting operations in several countries, including Canada, the United States, Estonia, Norway, and the Netherlands. The US, the Netherlands, and the UK have accused Russia's GRU military intelligence service of a string of cyber attacks. They were accused of hacking, spying, even attempting to overthrow the Prime Minister of Montenegro, who was pushing for his country to join NATO. And in each operation, Deborah Hodov says the alleged Russian agents left behind trails of evidence, forgetting to delete incriminating computer files, for example, or sending money for their operations through Western Union, an American financial company. One of the most jaw-dropping examples of alleged Russian agents getting caught red-handed happened in April of 2018. The Netherlands accused Russian agents of trying to hack into the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, or the OPCW. That's the world's chemical weapons watchdog, which was, at the time, investigating that nerve agent used in Salisbury. Four Russian undercover agents traveled to the Netherlands on diplomatic passports. And when Dutch officials stopped them from taking pictures outside the OPCW's headquarters, police opened the trunk of their car and found a ton of sophisticated hacking equipment. One of the suspects had even kept the receipt from his taxi ride to the Moscow airport. And incredibly, the receipt clearly indicated that he had been picked up, guess where? At GRU headquarters. So this is super stupid. And, uh, well, everybody thinks that, like, Russian foreign intelligence is, like, something like in uh, uh, serious Americans or in Homeland or in House of Cards, something like super clever people, super professional who can do very difficult tasks. But they are super unprofessional. This is all myth about uh, their uh, very great intelligence through his work investigating these stories, Deborah Hodoff learned a few things about how GRU agents operate and how they conceal their true identities. So when British police went on TV in September... But we need further help. ...and released those images of the suspects in the Skripal poisoning... If you know these people, you're going to recognize them off those images. And if you do, wherever you are in the world, get in touch with us and tell us who they are. Deborah Hodoff decided to take them up on the challenge. We uh, thought that this is a very good challenge for us as investigative journalists. So at that time we started our investigations because we got some information that we could use. Still, he didn't have much to work with. British police had only released the suspects' photos and their fake names, Ruslan Boshirov and Alexander Petrov. So Deborah Hodoff teamed up with Bellingcat, a British-based investigative news website. Bellingcat managed to purchase a database of Russian passports, which was being sold illegally online. From there, they found the suspects' Russian passports with their fake names, 
the ones they'd used to enter the UK. And Deborah Hodoff had an idea. In the end, we understood that there is a very simple solution. Now, during his past investigations, Deborah Hodoff had noticed that GRU agents used passports with fake identities that sometimes contained their real first names and their real birth dates. In other words, they'd only bothered to change their last name on their fake ID documents. And Deborah Hodoff wondered whether the same might be true of the Skripal suspects. We checked the theory, and so we changed only surnames. Mm, so so, and we were looking in different databases, approximately with the same name, patronymic name, and date of birth. And uh, we found only one person in St. Petersburg, who was Alexander Mishkin. And checking Alexander Mishkin, we found that his, he had had a car in Moscow registered on his, on his name. And this car was registered on uh, address of headquarters of GRU, Hrashovskaya Chasse 76. Uh, at that time, we understood that this must be our guy. Uh, so we look again in the passport data, and again we found that uh, there is uh, the picture of this concrete person. And it's funny that his uh, car was registered on Giroux headquarters because, like, it's uh, not a very clever thing to do. So they'd found the first guy, but that name and birthday search trick did not work for the second suspect. So they searched records of Russian military schools, yearbooks, and websites, and eventually found a photograph of a man that resembled the second suspect, Ruslan Bashirov. His real name? Colonel Anatoly Chapiga. In 2014, he was a recipient of Russia's highest state award, the Hero of the Russian Federation, an award that's often presented personally by Russian President Vladimir Putin. In a matter of just a few weeks, Deborah Hodoff and his counterparts at Bellingcat had found their men. Got some breaking news coming in concerning the Salisbury Novichok poisoners. He's not, as he claimed, Ruslan Bosharov, a fitness instructor, but Colonel Anatoly Chapiga, a highly decorated Russian military intelligence officer. The investigative website Bellingcat published photos and documents. The strongest evidence yet of state involvement. Deborah Hodoff and the team at Bellingcat uncovered numerous other pieces of evidence to support their findings, all of which were then published both on Bellingcat's website and on Deborah Hodoff's site, The Insider, written in Russian. Both articles explain in detail how they went about their investigations and found the information with a level of transparency that, frankly, you don't often see from traditional news organizations. A controversial website, Bellingcat, claims it's identified the second suspect. Since their articles were published last fall, both websites, Bellingcat and The Insider, have become regular targets of Russian television and the Kremlin. A Russian foreign ministry spokesperson called Bellingcat a tool for foreign governments to promote their propaganda. But Bellingcat's founder, Elliot Higgins, says their work speaks for itself. You look back at the work we've been doing, and you know, I've been doing since 2012, and I've always explained the sources and where we're getting this information from. We're you know, as transparent as we possibly can be. Um, so, you know, I mean, if people want to believe we're Western intelligence and they don't have any evidence for it, I don't think there's going to be much I can do to change their mind. 
I asked Charles Shoebridge, the former British counterintelligence officer that we met earlier this episode, what he thought of the articles and the evidence. Now, Shoebridge is often critical of the Western press for rushing to judgment, particularly against Russia. He suspects Bellingcat and the insider might have had some help from British intelligence, perhaps pointing them in the right direction so the information would come out and British officials could keep their hands clean. But Shoebridge says there's no denying that the evidence put forward looks pretty damning for Russia. Bellingcat have presented evidence, no matter where they found that or what information or advice or guidance they were given. Again, it presents uh, at least a case to answer. Um, those individuals named have a case to answer and on the evidence presented, and they have not answered that case satisfactorily so far. I think probably almost everybody could agree with that. But it seems highly unlikely that these two Russian suspects charged with poisoning Skripal will ever have to answer for their alleged crimes. Russia does not extradite its own citizens to face charges abroad. So it's hard to imagine this case ever seeing the inside of a British courtroom. And it also means we're left with the larger questions. How could Russian intelligence agents be so careless? And did President Putin give the order? One theory that's popular among Putin's supporters is that the Skripal poisoning was a Russian mafia hit gone terribly wrong. But Deborah Hodov, the Russian investigative journalist who broke the story, has another theory. And it's a bit unsettling. People just cannot understand that GRU units could be so stupid and, and sloppy and that President Putin would keep signing off on, on more of these assignments. But he has uh, no choice, actually, because, well, he at first he chose the strategy of conflict with uh, Western countries. So, like, uh, before, especially before 2014, he thought that he can persuade Western countries that uh, Russia is the part of the Western world, that we are part of G8, and that, like, we are integrated to Western countries. But uh, still, Western countries did it except uh, Russia as democracy, especially after war in Ukraine, he failed to uh, integrate into this uh, community. And he chose another uh, strategy, strategy of North Korea, strategy of threatening everybody to make everybody think that we are insane, that we are dangerous. And then saying that like, we, we, will, we will be more peaceful if you will give us this or that. It's pretty efficient for Vladimir Putin, at least for now, and uh, yes, his rating inside Russia is uh, very low now, but that only means for, for him, it is a signal that he must be more aggressive because he wants to mobilize Russian society around him to explain the idea that uh, we are surrounded by enemies. So the less support he has inside, the more aggressive he becomes. In other words, Putin no longer really cares if his undercover agents get caught behaving badly in foreign countries because it sends a clear and intimidating message. Those who dare to challenge Putin, be they former spies or foreign countries, would be wise to watch their backs. For Curious Cast and Global News, this is Russia Rising, an investigative series from me, Jeff Semple, to unravel the mystery of today's Russia. 
If you liked what you heard, you can help spread the word by rating, reviewing, and subscribing for free now at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and every other app where you get your streaming audio. We can also be found at CuriousCast.ca. Next time, we'll explore how the Kremlin responds to accusations, like the Skripal poisoning in the UK, by exploring an ancient Russian strategy known as Mazkirovka, the Russian art of deception. The main thing is distract, spread as many different conspiracy theories and alternative explanations as possible. So people think, well, we don't really know what's going on. There's just lots and lots of versions and who's know what the facts are. It's designed quite simply to keep adversaries permanently off balance. That's next time on Russia Rising. If you have a question or want to know more, follow me on Twitter at JeffSempleGN or email me at RussiaRising at CuriousCast.ca and be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today. Russia Rising is written and hosted by me, Jeff Semple. Dila Velezquez is our story producer and sound design is by Rob Johnston. Thanks for listening and join us next time for Russia Rising. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone. Like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.